I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. Much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg is our host each and every week. And uh, she always has something uh, uh, great on her mind. And whether you agree or disagree, it's always uh, it, it's uh, it's always well thought out, and sometimes it's ad libbed, and I think we're going to ad lib one here, and I think that's a good thing, and uh, and and we're going to be talking about some voting, and she's the uh, the the author of sixteen books, she is the uh, subject of a documentary, and of course many many shows, and she's terrific. Doc, how are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. Well, I'm terrifically busy because I'm coming up on my 90th birthday wow. on the 3rd of December, and I'm giving a huge party. Uh, everybody I know in San Antonio and anybody who can come in from outside wow. uh, is welcome, and I'm catering it so that I can enjoy it myself. Uh, and so I uh, have been decorating the house for Christmas already. Um, and anyway, uh, I've just been like a cat with four tails or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what an uh, and you know and this sounds funny to say, but what an accomplishment ninety years is, and a lot of people might say an accomplishment. You just you know I mean what an accomplishment uh, it is. All of the things that you had to go through. The things you lived through as a child, and the lived you lived through as uh, a young woman, uh, a woman, a uh, a married woman, married to an older man, a Holocaust survivor, uh, your your family, um, the outside prejudices against uh, your family, uh, all of the different struggles that you would you would have that we haven't even uh, probably gotten in to even scratch the surface on. Uh, on on the the politics with a small p the small politics for um, each university that you got involved with getting your doctorate uh, it has been one long accomplishment and and hopefully a, an experience for you and a, a likable experience do you look at it do you see this uh, as being that what I'm talking about an accomplishment or, or a series of accomplishments uh, what do you see it just as an experience? I, I see it as sort of that my life is a sort of record of a big chunk, two-thirds of the, the 20th century, and now a pretty good-sized chunk, quarter anyway, almost, of the uh, 21st. So so I'm kind of a li living history book. <laughs> no good, No doubt about it. So that's how I look at it. I don't look at my life so much as accomplishments as as survival and <laughs> and overcoming uh, indeed because I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, that goes to show that there was a lot of overcoming to be done along the way. Uh, plus a near death experience uh, with peritonitis um, and uh, burst appendix and peritonitis. Uh, 11 hours out of port with no doctor on board the ship um, in 1960. So uh, if I had succumbed to the peritonitis, which was well advanced, um, I certainly would not have been uh, here and would not have accomplished most of what I have. So anyway, uh, we better get going on this subject. Yeah, no, no. I'm going to talk about instead. Yeah, uh, voting. 
Yes, voting rights, indeed. Um, and I took off on and was inspired by uh, yesterday's editorial. Um, so that was Wednesday's editorial. And uh, it says here, that the, the caption for this editorial is, Voting Rights Act Hanging On by a Thread. And uh, I don't know who wrote this editorial, but it is the editorial board of the San Antonio Express News. And it's well thought out. Um, and I'm going to uh, introduce my talk by uh, laying it out uh, pretty much the way they did and then going into a longer analysis uh, by a man whose name you might know. It's uh, Ian Milheiser. Yeah, I do. I do know that name. Yeah, he's a senior correspondent of Vox, uh, where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. So he has a good deal to say about uh, what's happening in the courts right now. So to get right into this, uh, the 15th Amendment uh, of the U.S. Constitution was enacted nearly a century ago. And it had already declared that that, and I'm quoting the 15th Amendment now, the right of citizens of the United States to, uh, to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And of course, this amendment was written um, right after the Civil War. I don't know whether, uh, I think Lincoln might probably, probably was uh, still alive at that point. Mm. And so this landmark decision about voting rights um, arrived, uh, was immortalized, you might say, uh, by being added to the Constitution as the 15th Amendment. Now, the Voting Rights Act was crucial because it provided enforcement mechanisms to back up these principles that I just uh, summarized in that one sentence. Uh, so under Section 5 uh, of the Voting Rights Act, which was enacted in 1965, right at the uh, peak of the civil rights movement at the time, uh, against Jim Crow, Jim Crow, which had been the the uh, uh, the norm in the South of this United States mm -hmm. until then, uh, and it provided enforcement mechanisms for the first time. Uh, so, uh, under Section Five, um, uh, jurisdictions, states. Uh, with a history of discrimi uh, discriminating against uh, blacks mainly, but people of color, uh, would be uh, subject to pres uh, federal supervision, requiring preclearance from either the U.S. Justice Department or a federal court um, in the District of Columbia for any proposed election changes. Uh, in other words, uh, the southern states were heavily gerrymandered at the time, and this was to make sure 
that that uh, sort of gerrymandering change that could be brought in with a new administration in a state uh, would not uh, would not go in automatically, but would have to be looked at first by federal authorities. So, unfortunately, excuse me, my glasses were That's skidding okay. down my nose. <laughs> Uh, so, um, the uh, decision in 2013, uh, by the way, I'm getting a beep in my ear. Okay. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Um, all right. Did we get the whole thing about uh, the... Uh, yes, we did. The southern states uh, having to... Uh, uh, submit their changes to supervision. You got all that? Yes, we did. Okay, fine. Then I'll begin with the new development, which is the one that happened in uh, recently in 2013. Okay, here we go. Go. Uh, with its thir uh, 2013 decision, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court severely damaged the Voting Rights Act's information—I'm uh, sorry—enforcement powers by ruling that the coverage formula for uh, for determining which jurisdictions should be supervised no longer applied and needed to be thrown out. So uh, that left only one way to hold state and local governments accountable for discriminatory election policies, uh, and that would be uh, legal challenges from private parties. Okay, I'm getting the beep again. All the way through. Last week, the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decided to take away that one critical tool of democracy. The court ruled that private entities cannot bring lawsuits under a provision of the Voting Rights Act. And the issue is uh, headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, there is a professor of law at New York University named Melissa Murray who had some interesting things to say about this. She said that the circuit court's decision was based on, and I'm quoting her now, a very radical, very fringe theory. But she also noted that it's a theory already endorsed by two U.S. Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas. That's no surprise there. No. Murray also said that if the Supreme Court affirms the Eighth, court, uh, Eighth, Eighth Court's ruling, it will completely destroy what is left standing of the Voting Rights Act. And she's right, mm. uh, because one of the greatest legislative achievements in the, his in the history of this country is hanging on by a thread. And uh, if that... Uh, if the U.S. Supreme Court passes that uh, suggestion by the Eighth Court of Appeals, um, goodbye, uh, Voting Rights Act, because the only provision that would be left would be that the Justice Department um, bring a suit. And, of course, the Justice Department is limited in its personnel uh, to work on the cases of that sort. And so very few cases would get through. 
and therefore uh, discriminatory practices would flourish once again and Jim Crow would be back. Hmm. Okay, so um, I'm going to Ian Milheiser right now, who is uh, a senior correspondent at Vox, uh, where he uh, works on uh, the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and worries about the decline of liberal democracy in this country. And he says, and I'm quoting him here, last week, as most Americans were thinking about their Thanksgiving dinners, a pair of federal appeals courts handed down some, uh, some of the sharpest attacks on the Voting Rights Act. So the first was an opinion from a divided panel of the U.S. State Court of Appeals, uh, the Eighth Circuit, um, that uh, if it's affirmed by uh, the Supreme Court, would destroy the Vote Voting Rights Act, virtually destroy it. And it was written by a certain judge, David Strauss, and that is S-T-R-A-S, probably was Strauss, and he dropped the U. Right. Um, and he is a Trump-appointed judge. And it would strip private parties of their ability to file lawsuits enforcing the Voting Rights Act. And, as I just said, established that all such lawsuits must be brought by and only by the Justice Department. So there is another judge, Levinsky Smith, who notes in his dissent that over the past 40 years, litigants have brought, and these are individuals, have brought 182 successful lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act, and only 15 out of those were brought solely by the Department of Justice. So if Strauss's unusual reading of the law uh, gets through the Supreme Court, nearly 92%, in other words, 167 of those 182 successful lawsuits, uh, would um, uh, would be victorious, and most lawsuits would have ended in defeat of the individuals. So that was Strauss's. Uh, and then on the day after Thanksgiving, the 11th court handed down its decision attacking a core principle of the Voting Rights Act. And this was Judge Elizabeth Branch, also a Trump appointee. And in her opinion, her opinion isn't quite as aggressive uh, as Strauss's opinion, uh, but it would heavily damage the, uh, the purposes of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so the only, um, and it would disenfranchise, of course, uh, voters of color, so that's blacks and Hispanics. So um, she asks, Judge Branch asks whether states may elect multi-member bodies, such as a legislature, using an at-large scheme where every member of the body is elected by the state as a whole. So the Supreme Court, actually, uh, before the present Supreme Court was uh, put together by Donald Trump, uh, warned that at-large voting schemes in multi-member districts 
minimize the voting strength of minority groups by permitting the political majority to elect all representatives of the district. And I don't know whether that's clear. Mm. Okay, so if you have a body, let's say um, a committee, a subcommittee of the state legislature, and it's an appointed group by the governor. Uh, and there may be, uh, let's say there are 10 um, there are 10 uh, white people and two blacks, and that's sort of typical, or maybe even three or four blacks. Yeah. But in any case, the 10, uh, the majority would rule in their decision. And so uh, the, uh, the majority is white, therefore the decision would be to the benefit of the white members. Uh, and, uh, and so the blacks would... Uh, lose actually lose the representation uh, under such an at-large scheme. So um, this would automatically then damage the voting rights of individual people, and certainly people of color in this country. So it would should alar alarm everybody uh, <laughs> that. Um, uh, that the Voting Rights Act would be drastically weakened if such at-large schemes were put into practice. Hmm. So even if the Supreme Court resists these efforts to destroy the one federal law that likely did more than any other to end Jim Crow, there is a serious risk that the entire law could fall if Republicans, such as Trump himself, get to appoint more judges to the Supreme Court. Hmm. Now, uh, Ian uh, Moheiser goes into detail about why Strauss's opinion, as he calls it, is a train wreck. <laughs> um, and it allows, uh, it, his opinion uh, allows lawsuits challenging racial discriminatory voting practices um, to be uh, enforced only by the uh, by the DOJ, the Department of Justice, um, and this, of course, would rule out uh, almost all lawsuits, as shown by the statistics I just quoted. That there were 182 such cases brought before the Supreme Court in um, in the last 40 years, but. Only 15 of those were brought uh, by the Department of Justice. So uh, that's 167 mm. uh, cases that would fall by the wayside because they were brought by individuals. Okay, now the problem with the Voting Rights Act is that it does not explicitly state that uh, private parties are permitted to bring lawsuits to enforce the law. But a, a case that was decided the year before the Voting Rights Act was passed, uh, it's a case called Case versus Borak in 1964. It decided, um, this, and this is the Supreme Court deciding, that courts should read federal statutes generously to allow the parties who benefit from those laws to bring federal lawsuits. In other words, 
the Supreme Court itself decided back in, in uh, 64. Uh, that's, uh, and this is a different case entirely. Um, that in the year before Voting Rights Act was passed, this uh, decision says federal statutes should be interpreted generously to allow the parties who benefit from the laws to bring federal lawsuits. So um, here is a quotation from that uh, from that case. Kate, uh, Case versus Borak is the name of it. And it says, it is the duty of the courts, and this is the Supreme Court, to, uh, it is the duty of the courts to be alert to provide such remedies as are necessary to make effective, effective the congressional purpose. And the Supreme Court explained um, that, and I'm quoting the Supreme Court here again, a federal statute passed to protect a class of citizens, although not specifically authorizing members of the protecting class to institute suit, nevertheless implied a private right of action. Okay, so this is the Supreme Court back then in the 60s. So, it, uh, the Voting Rights Act then should be uh, read according to that case, that it should, the Voting Rights Act should be read to permit private lawsuits. And those post, the post-1965 decisions that have been handed down by more conservative courts, however, have held that judi the judiciary should be more reluctant to find implied rights of action within a federal statute. And uh, probably the most um, important of these decisions that were by more conservative courts was Alexander versus Sandoval in 2001, which held, held that statutes that focus on the person regulated rather than the individuals protected create, and I'm quoting, no implication of an intent to confer rights on a particular class of persons. So um, if federal law uses language like no state shall do something X, let's say, instead of all persons have a right to X, in other words, protection, courts typically should not permit private lawsuits under that statute. So the climate, uh, the liberal, I think we could call it, and democratic climate to allow private lawsuits has been, has been diminished uh, in later decisions, uh, beginning in 2001, actually. So the threat of Strauss's opinion uh, is that uh, the, um, the, the Sandoval, which is the, his uh, decision, should be read uh, retroactively to neut neutralize the right of private parties to sue under the Voting Rights Act. So um, the relevant pr uh, provision in the Voting Rights Act reads, and here we go, no voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state. 
and it goes on to forbid any voting practice, quote, which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote, unquote. So, uh, Congress wrote the, the uh, Voting Rights Act against the background of decisions uh, like the one preceded it by one year, which emphasized that private parties should generally be allowed to sue to enforce their legal rights. And federal courts have understood the law to permit private suits as far back as the 1960s, of course, and Congress has amended the Voting Rights Act multiple times, but it has never questioned the long-standing assumption that the law permits private lawsuits. So there's an enormous body of law precedent that allows pri uh, private lawsuits going all the way back to the 1960s. So uh, federal civil rights law also includes a catch-all statute, and this is separate from voting rights law and it is known as Section 1983, which permits state officials to be sued if they uh, deprive someone of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws. And of course, that refers directly to the, amend to the 15th Amendment. So the Voting Rights Act law secures a right to be free from race discrimination in elections which means that even if the voting right itself doesn't authorize pr a private cause of action. Section 1983 permits lawsuits seeking to enforce the rights created by the Voting Rights Act by individuals. Indeed, the Supreme Court just reaffirmed in a case called Health and, and Hospital Corporation versus Talevsky in 2023, so this very year, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that Section 1983 gives private individuals broad authority to sue to enforce their statutory rights. So there you are. There's a different statute there. Yeah. Um, so, Strauss. Uh, so Ian uh, Moheiser says that Strauss's approach isn't simply wrong, it's obviously wrong. <laughs> because not only the Voting Rights Act uh, has been interpreted as allowing an individual to sue for himself or herself, um, uh, the uh, Section 1983 does exactly the same thing in no uncertain terms. Uh, and so uh, there's no ambiguity with uh, Section 1983. Okay, so the effect of Strauss's approach would be to shut down the Voting Rights Act in its entirety whenever, uh, whenever Republicans control would control the White House. And during the entire Trump administration, the Justice Department's voting section, so this is what Strauss uh, allows would be still valid, a suit brought by the Justice Department. So during the entire uh, Trump administration, uh, the, the, uh, the Justice Department only brought one lawsuit, one, alleging discrimination under the Voting Rights Act, and that was a minor suit 
alleging that the method of electing school board members in a South Dakota school district dilutes (laughs) dilutes the voting strength of American Indian citizens. So this was a very minor suit, and it was the only one brought under that Republican-controlled White House. (laughs) Okay, now, Strauss is not the only one. Moheiser uh, uh, notes that there is another one that would damage the Voting Rights Act, and that is one by uh, a judge named Elizabeth Branch. And she uh, doesn't attempt to destroy the Voting Rights Act almost in, almost in its entirety, but uh, she uh, advocates large voting systems. Um, and uh, these, although not always illegal, um, do damage the Voting Rights Act when um, an at-large system results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. And uh, that is a quotation from uh, from the Voting Rights Act, actually. Um, so... Um, this is, of course, the at-large business that I was talking about earlier. Uh, her opinion would green light, green light such systems uh, whenever they're used on a statewide basis rather than by a county or a municipal or other smaller government body. So um, although the Supreme Court or other courts have, str- have stricken down at-large systems, used by city councils and school boards and so forth. Uh, Anything uh, that comes from the state itself, she thinks, would be legal and probably uh, the way that suits should be brought rather than by the individual. So um, the actually the Voting Rights Act applies equally to any state as well as any uh, political subdivision of a state. And so it's quite clear that uh, her exception um, given to the state as as a valid authority to bring a suit is wrong because the uh, Voting Rights Act itself says that any political subdivision is also subject to uh, the Voting Rights Act's restrictions. So uh, then she she hauls out the general pr- principle of federalism to protect the state's right to, um, let's say, uh, the majority opinion in the state has overruled any objections by uh, black representatives because they are in a small minority, as they are in most of the southern states, including Georgia. Um, and um, uh, so, therefore, the, the opinion of the state of Georgia, let's take uh, it as an example, would be entirely the white opinion, because that the majority rules uh, under this idea. And so um, she says that the general principles of federalism uh, would protect the state's uh, majority opinion, and it would have to go through. Uh, so if, uh, if Georgia, say, uh, 
uh, says that uh, all black and uh, brown people have to take a, uh, a qualifying test before they're allowed to vote. That's, let's say that uh, fiction like that would come to pass yeah. uh, the way it was under Jim Crow. Um, that uh, the uh, the federal government could take no uh, would could not object to that could take no action against that because of federalism. Now federalism, of course, is the idea that this that's a, that is the states' rights idea, uh, and uh, of course the sta states' rights has no place whatsoever in a voting rights act lawsuit. The entire purpose of the Voting Rights Act was to prevent Jim Crow states, and that includes Georgia again, from running their elections in ways that depart from the federal commitment to racial equality. And the Constitution is quite clear that it's Congress and not the state, any state, or the state of Georgia, uh, any state has the final uh, it, and not the state has not the final say on how elections will be conducted in that state especially where at least where race discrimination is at issue and the 15th amendment prohibits states from denying or abridging the right to vote on account of race color or previous condition of servitude and it provides and th get this it provides that congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So the federal government rules over any state in this, uh, according to the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. So that means that Branch, Branch's opinion is wrong, simply wrong. But whether the Supreme Court will pay attention to that, two of the justices already are eager to pass um, the law uh, in accordance with Strauss's idea that no individual can bring suit. And Branch would simply be a, a contribution to that same decision, no doubt, uh, that, um, that a body, if a state decides, if, if a state legislature decides by majority vote, uh, to restrict black and brown people's voting rights, uh, uh, then this, the, uh, according to the Supreme Court ruling, uh, they might uh, acquiesce to such a situation. And that is the danger. So, in their latest decision, the Supreme Court told the state of Alabama that their gerrymandering was illegal and that they had to go back to the drawing board and make another map of the state which would allow for a second uh, voting district that would be uh, representing black people. There's already one. They allowed one to exist <laughs> among I don't know how many um, districts that were uh, white. So uh, the, the black population would be totally denied their rights uh, by the gerrymandering situation in Alabama before the Supreme Court came down on them. Uh, and that uh, that lawsuit is, is goes by the name of Milligan. Uh, so th that was 
according to the law, uh, the uh, voting rights law. And that was a great surprise to everybody. <laughs> However, before Milligan, the Roberts Court record in voting rights uh, is almost unrelentingly hostile. Uh, Moheiser says, unrelentingly hostile. And so in a 1913 case, the court's Republican appointees simply made up a doctrine, the principle, and this is a made up doctrine that never existed in law, the principle that all states enjoy equal sovereignty, unquote. And that's not mentioned in the Constitution, uh, but it was used in order to strike down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, uh, so the Supreme Court also made up a bunch of limits on the Voting Rights Act that cannot be found anywhere in any legal text, such as a strong presumption that voting restrictions were already in place in 1982 and that they are lawful. So uh, Justice Elena Kagan says uh, that these these uh, precedents, these decisions, uh, mostly, she calls, she says, and I'm quoting her, they mostly inhabit a law-free zone, unquote. So Strauss's and Branch's disregard for long-standing law might be understandable because, after all, the Roberts Court frequently hands down Voting Rights Act decisions that don't even attempt to ground their holding in constitutional or statutory text. So good, goodbye precedents. They will make up their own law. Okay, so there, before Milligan, uh, the court was mainly hostile to the Voting Rights Act and ruled accordingly, and they made up law. Uh, in order to do so. Uh, so um, we have the, all those precedents at the Supreme Court versus Milligan, which upheld the Voting Rights Act. So, as I said in the beginning, the Voting Rights Act is really hanging by a thread because the preponderance of uh, Supreme Court ruling is on the negative side. So, um, if the Supreme Court refer, uh, affirms the Eighth Circuit Court's ruling and the Eleventh Circuit Court's ruling, it will completely destroy what is left standing of the Voting Rights Act. The U.S. Supreme Court has the power to save what's left to it or thoroughly destroy it at a time when our dem democratic institutions are already under attack. The stakes couldn't be higher. And I hope that all of that detail was intelligible. It's, yeah, it, beyond, it was, it's, it's wonderful. Um, but I, I have something to add. Are you, are you done? I have something interesting. I am done. You know, yes. If you're not aware of this, it certainly would be worth checking out. Um, HBO, and if you go to HBO.com, you could you could read it. There's a documentary currently out. It's just out now. It's called oh. so South to Black Power. Now, there is a journalist, you may have heard of him, named Charles M. Blow. 
B-L-O-W, African-American journalist. Yes, uh, I know him. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. op-ed writer. Now, it's been his mission in life for, for years now to encourage black voters to, yes. to move south into nine different states. And I, I won't be able to name the nine, but one of them is Mississippi, believe it or not. And uh, one of them is North Carolina, which, uh, which he feels is about to, to pop as far as the, uh, uh, you know, changing from, uh, from red to blue. Uh, on on that because of the uh, of the black voter migration, uh, I think mm-hmm. he calls it a reverse migration, and <clears throat> it's uh, I just interviewed him uh, the other day. Flo and I've interviewed him in the past, but he is uh, it, it's it's really a very proactive move that people could could look at as a, as a counterpunch to uh-huh. what what they're doing with the with the voting right. And it's, uh, again, I'm going to repeat it uh, for the listeners, South to Black Power. I have not seen it. I just interviewed Blow on it, uh, Charles M. Blow. And um, in short, I'll just give you a, a little, uh, you know, snippet of what they're saying. Uh, they, mm-hmm. meaning IMDB, um, uh, Charles M. Blow calls for a reverse great migration of African Americans from the North back to the South to upend today's political power structures while uh, while restructuring, uh, hold on, uh, while reclaiming the land and culture they left behind. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like we don't have any synopsis um, to, that could kind of like uh, do any better than what I just read there. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you that it's, it is a counterpunch. It is a, it is a tremendous counterpunch to yeah. uh, what you're just talking about here, but yes, right. South to Black yeah. Power, it's called. South to Black Power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I encourage okay. everyone, including you, Doc, uh, to check it out because it absolutely. Uh, yeah, and maybe we could talk about it in in the future. But great job on this. Um, it's scary, but not as scared as as some. And again, I'm trying not. I'm trying to. You know, play it down the middle, uh, and and I'm not saying everybody uh, is is uh, is bigoted in certain states or whatever. But uh, I I asked Blow. I said, look, uh, I I said, do you uh, do, do you feel or do you sense that uh, the bigots, the, the you know the undeniable bigots, um, in a state like Mississippi? And I'm not saying they're all right, but there are clearly bigots in, in Mississippi, just like there are bigots in every state and every country in the world. Right. Um, uh, are they doing anything to try to combat this? And if they if they would, what would it be? And, you know, some might argue the, the voting, voting Rights Act. Right. Could be, uh, you know, like, you know, in and around that area. Um, of uh, of trying to you know recreate Jim Crow in some ways or or whatever, yeah. but uh, this is like I said a counterpunch to anybody that's trying to suppress black vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yes, it would be. It would be wonderful. Uh, and I think the trends there are trends whether they will become dominant or not, but there are like in the uh, Tennessee legislature where they threw out their their two black. Uh, legislators and uh, uh, and then the, uh, the protest was so violent against what they had done that the two 
um, the uh, voting public reinstated the two legislators, and they're <laughs> and they're back in the legislature right now. Uh, Amazing. So, yeah, and that was in the, in the national news too for a while. The the expulsion was, and and then a little uh, notification that they got back, <laughs> which I think is a wonderful um, ending of that. Uh, episode from white supremacists in the legislature there yeah. uh, to get rid of those uh, those liberal voices um, that were coming from those two men. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, it's a drama that's going to continue uh, for a while, but um, it's uh, I, I think it's interesting to note that, uh, again, uh, there was a major counterpunch, and uh, I think it's worth repeating. Charles M. Blow, everyone, um, south to black power. So, uh, Doc, any final word? Well, I just hope that the Supreme Court continues its its trend in Mulligan uh, and uh, votes accordingly to, uh, uh, on the Voting Rights Act so that the people who are trying to destroy it uh, are foiled. Um, right, but I think we can only pray about that. <laughs> yeah, so, it's there's no no direct influence we could have unless we want to write to the Supreme Court, uh, which I think is an exercise in futility. Unfortunately, no, you forget it. Yeah, <laughs> it might as well put it in a shredder. Write <laughs> yes. write it and just get it off your chest and put it in a shredder. Make yourself That's feel right. better. But the Voting Right Act, uh, Voted uh, Right Rights Act, is uh, is 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 alive and well. But it's the it's what they're trying to do, uh, you know, to it, and uh, that uh, they're going to keep trying, right? They're going to keep trying to uh, uh, to do what they can. And like you said, Mulligan is uh, um, is something that uh, you know that that I guess. Um, uh, you know, Springs Hope. I mean, what is it? Um, continues to, uh, you know, to. Um, I, I don't know. We we got some hope in this thing. We got we got some hope here, and don't count it out. No, I'm not counting it out. I'm just knowing uh, that all their previous decisions were hostile to the Voting Rights Act, and all of a sudden here they pop out this um, uh, this rebuke to uh, gerrymandering in Alabama and <laughs> force them to rewrite their... Uh, uh, and this is, this, this is what the uh, Voting Rights Act provided, uh, that a, a gerrymandered map or a state uh, a state proposing a voting map of districts would have to submit the map to a federal authority, which is what happened, because an individual brought suit against them for having really severely gerrymandered against the black voters in Alabama. And so the legislature had to provide another map, which I think was um, almost as discriminatory as the first one, but at least it created another uh, black district instead of having only one in the entire state. <laughs> and that has two. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. It's crazy. Uh, anyway. Uh, all right, Doc, thank you very much, and happy 90th birthday. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, I will be 90 the next time we talk. <laughs> wow, 90 years young. 
And uh, you got a lot well, more years ahead of you. Yeah, well, I, I thank God that I have most of my wits, not all of them, but most you know, of them. You're doing pretty yeah. good. I, I Listen, uh, if, you, if you've if you lost some of your wits, you're, you're still way ahead of the rest of us. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> great, great job, Doc. And to everyone out there, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>